This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Insurance Professional Resources. We're very pleased to have with us today expert service provider Fred Fisher from Fisher Consulting Group. Fred Fisher has an extensive background in claims with over 48 years experience in the insurance coverage arena for professional liability. He's a founding member of the Professional Liability Underwriting Society and also served as president. Mr. Fisher remains a special materials expert for several RPLU courses and is a senior technical advisor for the Professional Liability Insurance, which is a three-volume manual published by the Insurance Risk Management Institute. Mr. Fisher has lectured extensively on professional liability issues for over four decades and has authored over 64 articles and trade journals and publications. Mr. Fisher is also a faculty member of the Claims College and a member of the Executive Council's School of Professional Lines, sponsored by the Claims and Litigation Management Association. And he's also a course designer and web instructor for the Academy of Insurance. Mr. Fisher has given over 150 CE classes and lectures. And Fred, we're very pleased to have you with us again today. Thank you, John. I always appreciate uh, when AMBEST asked me to participate in a topic that uh, could be near and dear to my heart. Today's topic is current trends and liability claims. So Fred, for our first question, why don't you tell our audience, how are claims traditionally handled by insurers? Well, that's a good question because it sure has changed over the years. But uh, when I first got involved in the claims industry in 1975, um, it was uh, very common for all types of claims to basically be investigated by insurers and insurance companies. And uh, that was not necessarily as mandated by what later became the Fair Claim Practice Regulations uh, put out by the NAIC. Um, But it was boots on the ground investigation. Uh, And that was important to be able to quickly develop the facts of any type of claim, even first party claims for that matter, which serve two purposes. Number one, insurance companies are are statutorily required to post reserves. Although in most states still, they only are required to post liability or ultimate net payout reserves, not necessarily inclusive of any expense. Obviously, the uh, claims expense is an important aspect of any uh, potential claim. And so carriers would also look at what they think they might need to set up a a reserve for claim expenses, such as defense costs and what have you. Um, By investigating a case aggressively at the outset, it was possible often to have a relatively fairly developed factual matter for analysis within, say, 90 days, maybe as long as six months, depending on the cooperation of any third-party claimant. And by, by having that kind of development, you could set res- accurate reserves earlier, which serve two purposes. Number one, you, you know where you stand. And number two, actuaries could also have access to that data and reassess a particular book of business or a particular program to see how profitable it may be over time and make adjustments. So that was, uh, in other words, you could make adjustments to a program as opposed to after four or five years realizing, oh, gee, we're losing money and canceling a program as opposed to adjusting a program, whether it's increasing uh, premiums or, um, you know, limiting certain types of coverage and claims. The other thing that claims handlers traditionally did uh, was interface and interact with the underwriting department because the two go hand in hand. 
underwriters have a certain view of the world and have certain ways they want to approach coverage, but it's the claims people that, you know, have to handle the result of those decisions. And that by having interaction between the two, um, the adjustments, again, could be made as to whether or not policy language needs to be changed or there need to be additional um, uh, exclusions based on developing appellate decisions and what have you. And that level of communication was something that was extremely important, especially to, um, you know, innovative insurance companies. I don't like mentioning names of, of any particular carrier of a public event like this, but I know one company, for instance, that was, you know, ba basically a paper corporation, but uh, they were man they were owned by and managed by a managing general underwriter. And, uh, they wrote some really scary stuff and there was no manual for that. There was no uh, you know, information on claims. I mean, how do you uh, set pricing for a company that's going to have a product liability exposure when they're taking pig hearts and turning them into artificial heart valves? Uh, there's, no, there's no background for that. And, the, and yet this company was extraordinarily successful because they had good interaction between claims and underwriting. And over time, that has changed somewhat. And but I think that's traditionally been the model. And, and of course, the NAIC eventually came out with fair claim practice regulations mandating that insurance companies investigate their claims. So that's the industry that I grew up in starting in 1975 until I you know, opened up a wholesale brokerage in, you know, 20 years later. But I think that gives you some history on how claims were developed and hopefully be resolved and settled. You know, companies don't like paying claims. Uh, they want to hold on to their reserves as long as possible because they get investment income off of it, and et cetera, et cetera. But on closer review, that argument fails because when you look at the rate of return on reserves, which have to be conservatively invested, like money market funds, you know, I mean, you're not going to invest in anything risky with claim reserve cash. So it has to be conservative. Even if you were getting a 10% return, you couldn't defend a case at a $100,000 reserve. You couldn't res uh, defend a case year after year for $10,000 in revenue. It doesn't pencil out. That's number one. And number two, people forget that every time you put up a reserve on claims, you're also reducing the amount of capital surplus that is available to support underwriting. And that, that's the fallacy. Now, Fred, a short time ago, you talked about uh, models that insurers can use. Are there different or several different types of models that insurers can use? Oh, yes. Uh, again, this is developed over time. But the basic three models boils down to this. A lot of insurance companies do have internal claim departments where they have their own claim supervisors and examiners and, uh, and of course, field adjusters, maybe. And depending on the size of the insurance company, they may be able to do this nationally uh, because they have a, they're writing in all 50 states and they have physical uh, offices in all 50 states. Or uh, when you have a company that's, say, based in one state, but they're still writing nationally or in many states, that model gets shifted a little bit because now they may have to use independent adjusters and investigators uh, where they can find qualified organizations throughout the country. That's one model. That's been the traditional model. Another model is to delegate claims for one reason or another to a, uh, what's called a third-party claim administrator. And there it gets interesting because you're, how's, what's the fee going to be? What's it, uh, how's it going to be negotiated? Uh, 
how much are they going to be paid? Is it a flat rate per claim? Is it going to be by the hour with a cap of some kind? And it can get very interesting, especially with respect to the obligations the third party claim administrator may have. Uh, they can act as a super, in a supervisory capacity with claim supervisors and examiners, but they're basically desk jockeys and they may be paid accordingly. Well, what do you do when you need boots on the ground investigators? Well, then what do you do? They have to have authority to hire those uh, companies uh, in the locale where the loss occurred, as well as working out an arrangement on what uh, with the insurer as to what is acceptable as a method of payment. And, you know, it may even be the same boots on the ground and uh, adjusting companies that the insurance company itself might have used. So that, that also adds to the equation. The third model, however, is more interesting. And you usually see this in more sophisticated types of claims uh, like professional liability and DNO. But in, in many respects, it could also uh, backfire because of the reality of the, uh, what happens. And that's where you've got monitoring counsel, where you hire a law firm to act as a claims TPA. And you know that may sound like a great idea, especially on more sophisticated types of claims. But consider this. Number one, who's doing the work? Is it going to be the, the partner, the, the relationship partner that, you know, uh, makes a lot of money and uh, is basically um, entertaining and, and uh, promoting the claim department uh, at the insurance company or the underwriting folks? Or is it the second, third or fourth year associate that's doing the day to day work? And who is he working with? He's going to appoint defense counsel in a particular state where, again, he's probably going to be working with a second or third year associate who's doing the workup for the trial partner. And what do they hear? What are they talking about? How to defend the claim. You know, we have to file a demur. We have to file a motion to strike. We've got to get rid of the punitive damage allegations. Then we've got to do discovery. So we need this, you know, interrogatories and, and requests for admissions and, and on and on and on. But how are those people trained to close the file? What, is the end result and how long is it going to take? What's the goal? Is it well defined? And that's to me one of the problems I've seen over the years. Sometimes, not always. I don't want to paint a broad brush here, but with monitoring counsel, and it's also very expensive, much more expensive than a third-party claim administrator. Um, the other uh, problem: these different models have various variations. Some of them may work, some of them may not. I know in one instance I saw a claims TPA that was uh, hired by a major insurance company. Their contract required they handle claims consistent with best practices. That was in the contract. Best practices, which is a higher standard of care. Uh, that was number one. But on the same token, the, the amount of money that this firm was being paid was $288 per claim. And that's to handle the claim from cradle to grave. From the time it was first reported to the time the claim was closed. I don't know how you can take a recorded statement these days at $288 per claim and still handle it from cradle to grave at a level consistent with best practices. So what ended up happening was file would come up on diary every 90 days. The uh, claim person might look at the file and send out an email to the plaintiff attorney or make a phone call or leave a voicemail and diary for another 90 days. <laughs> that isn't going to work. That is just not, maybe cheap, but it is not going to work. It's certainly not going to aid in the development of a claim so adequate reserves can be set because you don't have the information to do it. But that's what was happening in that matter. So, but bottom line is each model has its pluses. Each model has its uh, detriments. The focus, however, is to be investigate, develop, adequately reserve, and have a, 
have a plan to close the file. That's the penultimate goal, closing the file without doing the obvious, which is throwing money out the window. And granted, there's always the, the plaintiff attorney who wants $10 million for a claim that's worth 25000 So that always becomes problematical. But, you know, those are, those are important. And I think technology has aided greatly in, in trying to reduce that problem somewhat. But you never know. Um, number one, uh, it's probably a good time to bring it up as any. Let's not forget, the profit center of any insurance company is not the marketing department. The profit center of any insurance company is not the underwriting department. The profit center of the insurance company is the claim department, which is the exact opposite of what a lot of people would expect. But that's how the insurance, insurance industry actually functions. It's the opposite of what most businesses look at. Unfortunately, over time, what has developed is that the claim department is seen as a cost center. And as a result, uh, there's not a lot of investment in it. They're always trying to cut costs and they're always trying to cut overhead and trying to cut expenses. And that includes the way attorneys are, are, are retained and paid for defense, the defense panel and what have you. Um, there's even a lot some insurance companies have even significant floats where they've got claims defense, you know, reserved. So they've already medically deducted that on an accrual basis from an accounting perspective. The reserve money still sitting in their bank account. And their attorneys are running up huge bills because a lot of insurance companies are slow pay. But they think, you know, well, that's the way that it's always worked. That's the way it's always been. And we send you a lot of cases, so you ought to be happy with the fact that eventually you do get paid kind of thing. And that's just, you know, wrong. You know, it's just wrong because ultimately they end up paying it one way, paying for that cost anyway. So they are being financed by their law firms. You don't think that they're considering that in their rates or how much time they spend? So it creates a lot of pressure. I don't necessarily agree with that philosophy. I do know some insurance companies that are known to quick pay their lawyers for that very reason. But I think those are some, those are the different models. Those are some of the, some of the upsides to the model and, of course, some of the downsides. But you can never get away from the fact that the claim department is the profit center. That's where you make or break it. That's where the profit is going to be made or lost. And so, again, that also goes back to rapid claim development so that you have accurate reserves earlier and the actuaries can make a can also assist in determining what adjustments, if any, might need to be made down the road. So, Fred, what perceptual mistakes are made with respect to claims departments? Well, I think I already answered that somewhat, but that, that perception, again, is the fact that the claim department is, the, is the, the profit center of the company. And unfortunately, it's not treated this one. And I've seen so many examples of it. Um, I, I think at one time uh, in another... Um, and best thing I, I brought up a, a particular lost run and I consider lost runs worthless. They don't tell you very much, um, especially when you're looking from a claim department perspective, when you're looking at it from either a book of a book, uh, a book of business lost run for a certain line of coverage or overall, or even for a specific policy holder, all the lost runs tell you is what are the open reserves, if any, what are the uh, expenses that have been paid? or losses that have been paid on that claim, and what's the total incurred. That's all it tells you. And, of course, you can look at the total incurred and measure that against, say, the premium to get an idea of whether or not what the loss ratio is between um, premium and uh, reserves or total incurred, and, you know, whether you're making money or not. But it doesn't tell you why. It does not tell you could it have been different. And I think a good illustration of that is a situation where um, 
it was actually bankrupted. I think it was Belfont Steel Corporation. They set up a captive insurance company to cover their own exposures. And of course, under IRS guidelines, they found they couldn't deduct the premiums paid to their own captive unless the captive started writing business on the open market. And so eventually they ended up reinsuring a fronting company for a brokerage that put together a real estate professional liability program. I've been involved in real estate professional liability claims my entire career, either as a claim person or as a broker. I can tell you that real estate agents and brokers, especially uh, residential, have the highest claim frequency of any professional ever since the 1970s. And so here you have a company that's going to write real estate professional liability, and it was a disaster. And um, the loss runs, you know, showed tremendous losses. And that loss run, unfortunately, was distributed amongst a number of insurance companies and underwriting agencies over the, uh, over some years. And I don't know why or how, but it doesn't matter. All I know is that a lot of uh, these underwriters were using that loss run as a basis to make decisions on whether or not they wanted to write a real estate ENO program for another MGA or MGU and how to price it. Because I even faced that because I approached the market back you know, in my early days as a wholesale broker to put together a real estate ENO program. And, you know, the underwriter I was talking to mentioned this particular program. And I said, I know that program very well. When I, in my claim days, we did a lot of qualitative claim audits. We were actually retained by a court as a neutral auditing firm to look at the claim files uh, as part of a lawsuit that was filed against the uh, the MGA by the uh, by the bankruptcy trustee because it broke the back of Belfont Steel's captives, and um, actually Belfont Steel actually went into bankruptcy, and uh, we were hired for that basis. And I said to him, "The loss run is accurate. That's exactly what the performance was on this program. But what it doesn't tell you is why and." Could it have been different? Where in that loss run, for instance, does it show that four different appellate courts in different states ruled that the prior act language was so bad that they basically opened up the policy to cover any wrongful act that took place before the policy accepted? Where in that uh, loss run does it tell you the appellate courts also talked about the fact that they were still using a language called claims which may M-A-Y, be first made during the policy term, which under a case, uh, I think I'm maybe one of three people still alive that knows about it, called Geiler versus Mission Insurance Company, that ruled that language meant, because they used the word may, that means it could have. Could a claim have been made, first made during the policy term? And if the answer is yes, you've got coverage, even though the claim was first made later, after the policy expired. Where in the last one does it tell you that? And the most importantly, where in the last run does it tell you that there was no claim department as we understand it, even as late as the, ni- the late 1980s and 1990s when this program was uh, being on, was ongoing? Where does it tell you that? Because I can tell you, having reviewed the claim files as an auditor, I can tell you, as a matter of fact, that there was no claim department. It literally was a brokerage firm, and they would uh, an insurance uh, would report a claim, and they and be told, "Go hire your own lawyer, and we'll pay for it, and let us know when you need any money to settle the matter." There was no supervision, not as we understand it. And so, where in the last one does it show you that? And the only way you can determine any of that, whether the claims are being handled or not, is by having a qualitative claim audit. 
And my claims firm did plenty of those for self large self-insured organizations as well as insurance companies. We looked at almost 50 different data points on each claim file. And that was in addition to looking at staffing and how many claims per person uh, a staff member would be handling and, and education levels and experience levels and, and reserve levels and, and supervision of counsel and what have you. 50 data points we looked at on grading every file to see whether or not it's being well handled and effectively handled. And that's all very important. So you can't tell anything without doing a qualitative claim audit on a regular basis. So these are perceptual, these contribute to all the perceptual mistakes, but make no mistake about it. Claim department is the profit center. And if run effectively, an insurance company can be very effective. So Fred, if, if there is a qualitative claims audit that, that's, that's done, what should some of the standards be? Well, number one, you want to, uh, there's a lot. <laughs> Number one, you want to be adequately staffed with people that are experienced. And then, of course, for the inexperienced ones, you want to handle, uh, you want them handling the more innocuous and small or what appears to be initially small claims. So you're going to have to set reserve levels or exposure levels. You also have to look at hazards. Um, it's one thing to have a slip and fall where somebody, you know, banged their knee. It's another thing to have a compound fracture. And that could be serious. Uh, so more since easily since the 1980s, there have been um, claims computer systems set up where, <clears throat> excuse me, that tracked all that. Uh, I think corporate systems is one of the first, and they had a very, very good, powerful system that, you know, had a lot of data going into it initially. And they used cause of loss codes. They had severity codes. Uh, they were tied to the type of injury. So you could, using, you know, uh, S, as in Sam, Q, L queries, you know, structured query language queries, you could get all types of claims like, you know, what claims, you know, involve compound fracture, what claims involve, you know, death, what, you know, that, those sort of things and get reports on this. And then you can look at the reserves. Or you could ask, say, do we have a comp, are there any compound fractures where the reserve is under $20,000? And you could see whether you, that would give you all sorts of information right then and there. So it's collecting the data uh, and a good system to track it. And number two, standards from day one. What's the date of the claim report? Well, first, obviously, the date of loss. Then what was the report date to the claim department? What was the date of the first attempt to contact the insured? And when was it finally accomplished? And so, granted, sometimes, you know, insurers are not as cooperative as one would like. We looked at it from the attempt. Did they attempt to contact the insured right away? Did they attempt to contact the claimant or the claimant's representative as soon as possible? So at least let, you, let them know we're here and we're looking into it. And then we look at dates of the nature of the investigation. Were all the witnesses contacted? Did they get statements? Um, were they evaluated? Were the reserves adjusted timely? Were all documents obtained? Um, these are all investigatory issues that also impact reserving. And so it's not uncommon to set an initial reserve of $1,000 or a dollar or whatever, and then you have to adjust it based on developing information. If it's in suit, you know, how fast did we notify or retain defense counsel? Are they panel counsel? Um, 
are there coverage issues? If there are coverage issues, is there a reservation of rights needed? And then, of course, you got to worry about, you know, whether or not the insured is uh, going to be allowed to hire their own counsel at the insurance company's expense under what's commonly referred to as the CUMIS decision or the CUMIS statutes. And uh, so those are all items to look at. And then, of course, how's defense counsel? handling the matter. Is he being properly supervised? Is there the kind of communication going on between the examiners and the, and the uh, defense counsel with the ultimate goal in mind? S closing the file. Are we going to have to go through trial? One of the things that never tell you, again, a good example of what doesn't show up in a loss run is the following. $750,000 in defense cost, closed file, zero indemnity. Now, most people would need jerk and say, who in their right mind would spend that kind of money? What that doesn't tell you, and unfortunately, again, lost reserves don't ever say tell you, is the exposure. And I define the exposure in that context as being, what is the plaintiff's demand? And, you know, in that scenario that I just mentioned with the $750,000 in reserve or, or in defense costs, that was a situation where we had a $5 million limit on the policy, a no liability case, and the plaintiff attorney never asked for anything less than policy limits. And a defense verdict was obtained. So he ended up spending $750,000 to save $4.25 million. I say that's a good result. But when you look at that just on a loss run, you know, it's like, what the heck is that about? Because one other ratio that we haven't discussed is the... Um, ratio between expense and indemnity what's the you know so in in certain types of uh claims for instance like slip and falls or whatever you would expect for every dollar spent on indemnification or, or, or settlement uh, for bodily injury you're going to spend maybe 25 cents in expenses when you get into more sophisticated types of, of claims like attorney malpractice or, or director and officer liability it can approach one-to-one -one. so when you've got a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar expense and zero indemnity, that blows your expense to loss ratio apart. But it's artificial. Because what never shows up in a loss run is the exposure. The last demand. How much the plaintiff attorney was demanding. That doesn't show up. It's not tracked. And for probably good reasons. Because, you know, insurance companies are also audited by uh, the state. And they're also audited by reinsurers. And they see something, you know, where they've got a $5 million, you know, exposure. It's like, oh, my God. You know. And, uh but that's what happened in that case. So it blew the expense to loss ratio out the window. But you know, there are ways of that actuaries can take a shock loss like that and not even use it as part of the calculation. Because in my opinion, you spent seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and saved four point two five million. Would it be, would the loss ratio would the expense to loss ratio look better if you paid the five million? <laughs> you know, so uh, on a no liability case. So those are, those are things that don't show up in loss runs. You can only find them on a qualitative law, uh, audit. And that's another reason why it's so important to, to do a qualitative audit regularly. And that would identify the fact that that was a well-handed claim. Fred, what are some of the trends you're seeing that are taking place that should be a cause of concern by both consumers and regulators? Well, one of the things I'm, I'm disturbed by is the lack of investigation that's going on. Uh, more and more insurance companies are, are, are moving towards a trend to evaluate claims, which basically means they're putting the burden on either their policyholder or their third-party claimant to provide the claim department with enough information and, uh, to justify a payment. 
But that's not what the uh, fair claim practice regulations state. Fair claim practice regulations require that you investigate claims. That means you've got to do something affirmative. You're not going to be passive. Evaluating means you're waiting for something to happen, land on your desk, you'll read it and evaluate and make some decisions. That's being passive. But the, the statutes don't require that. And I'm seeing this more and more and more. And, and granted, you know, in my expert witness practice, I do a lot of bad faith cases. And so I hate to think that, you know, because I'm seeing so much bad claim handling that I'm that does that happen with everybody? But I'm starting to think that it might. And a good example was that uh, was a case, uh, a couple of matters I handled involving total loss fires uh, in Malibu and in the Northern California during the, some of the wildfires that took place where um, it was. Uh, that's exactly what happened. They didn't put any boots on the ground. They didn't send anybody out to take photographs. They didn't send anybody out to talk to the building inspection department with regard to uh, new building codes that were put into place. They kept telling the policyholder, tell us, tell us what you tell us that. You go out and do this. That's ridiculous. That's why that's that's that is a trend that I think is not good for anybody because it means also that you're underreserved. The other trend is to use lawyers more and more, and the lawyers more and more are doing that kind of work. They're the ones that are developing the claim, either through legal discovery or otherwise. I mean, in one matter, uh, defense counsel was even the one getting information from the claim bureaus as to what comparable um, claims uh, had been settled for what amount of money? And you're telling me the claim department couldn't do that? You're going to pay a lawyer $300 an hour or more to do that? That's insane. That's nuts. But it's throwing off all the numbers as well. Because the more you delegate to law firms to do things, the higher your claim expense is going to be. And that's going to be uh, an actuarial uh, factor to increase pricing unnecessarily. So that's that's one of the real trends that I'm seeing is, uh, uh, to me, very disturbing. Fred, always very informative. One final question uh, today. Are private equity companies good or bad for the industry? I don't think you can paint a broad brush on that because there are several different private equity models. Um, but the model that I think is bad for the industry is the acquire, grow, or grow profitably, and flip in, in uh, less than three years. And I think that places a lot of uh, pressure to increase uh, profitability, which can be done one of two ways. You can grow organically and be highly profitable and, and as a result, or you can cut internally. And cutting internally can be done in a number of ways with an insurance company, particularly, because you can cut back on some staff, you can cut back on especially expensive staff, and then more importantly, you can um, uh, make it more difficult to, uh, and you can do it in a way that doesn't look like this is what you're doing, but uh, basically you are going to end up being under-reserved and that's going to affect profit. That's going to artificially increase profitability. And so, at some point, whoever buys that insurance company down the road is going to wake up and find out they're grossly underreserved. And that has happened many times, especially on smaller insurance companies. I saw that happen uh, with a company that it was an auto insurer in Florida that was acquired, and they didn't do a qualitative audit during the escrow phase, which, um, in a way, I can kind of understand because I could, you know qualitative claim audits aren't cheap. They can cost thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, depending on how many files you're going to look at or how many files you have to review. And you have to look at open files and claim and closed files. Uh, closed file uh, audits are very important. But more importantly, what they found out was after, th uh, after six months, they were under-reserved by over $2 million. 
And so that meant going back to the private equity company and, and they had to put in more capital and the organization that was running it, you know, had a, ended up having to give back some of their ownership. But in the long run, it worked out fine. Once the company became stable from a reserve standpoint and was able to maintain its rating, uh, they grew and ultimately were sold at a significant profit. But that's the concern. And I know that the NAIC uh, has gotten very concerned about uh, private equity companies uh, coming into the industry for that very reason. Because, again, they're only looking at making profit, profit, profit. They don't care how they get it. And, of course, if it means they have to, you know, be tight on claim payments and tight on claim reserves, they're going to do it. And, unfortunately, too many uh, departments of insurance are understaffed or uh, underfunded. Uh, and can't do the kind of uh, departmental audits that they used to make. And so a lot of companies are getting away with this. And I think overall, you're seeing that trend, not just in the insurance industry, you're seeing it everywhere. Private equity companies only want a return on investment. They don't care how they get it. Fred, always an engaging and informative uh, session with you. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Well, thank you, Dave, and Bess, for uh, <laughs> putting up with me as well. And I'm, I always look forward to working with you. And uh, thank you again. Thank you, Fred. You've just listened to Fred Fisher, president of qualified member expert service provider Fisher Consulting Group, and special thanks to today's producer, Frank Bowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for Best Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash professional resources. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.